Daily Dose of Hope. I hope you're doing great today. I have an amazing show and a very special guest. Um, this has, he has become a friend of mine and is also a colleague with I2H2E, which is the International Institute of Holistic Education. And I'm really excited to have Dr. Jeff Essence here. Dr. Jeff, hey, actually I'm going to call him Jeff. I hope you guys are okay with that. That's fine, that's cool. <laughs> Um, hey, Jeff, let's kick it off. Why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself? Because I'm sure many people listening didn't know you until now. Sure, sure. Um, I'm a naturopathic doctor, as you had said. Um, that was all started in the last part of last century. Uh, I finished my uh, naturopathic degree in July of 2000. Literally from day one, I've been in private practice with naturopathy. Uh, working with people. I specialize in autoimmune disease, but because of the diverse nature of what you have to do in natural medicine, digestion, blood sugar management, hormones, you know, ev everything under the sun, um, you know, I say from acne to cancer is, is sort of the range of what I work with. And a one day old up to, I think the oldest person was 102 that I worked on. So pretty much everything. Um, but yeah, the, the whole idea of uh, natural medicine as a methodology that wants to treat the whole person, not just one particular thing that's a label. We want to eliminate the toxic reasons why someone might have that disease, and we want to then encourage the nutritional aspects, the, the stimulatory aspects, so the person can heal themselves. Wow. I want, I want you to expand on something. You were just saying the toxic reasons why someone has that disease. Can you explain that a little bit? Certainly, and, and, and the word toxin might be misused by some people. In the naturopathic world, it's anything that, that is a harm or an irritant to the body. So this can be your food. This can be metals, chemicals, organisms like bacteria, viruses. This can be your emotions. I mean, you can have a toxic emotional environment, a toxic work environment. So anything that would irritate, aggravate, and throw the body off balance is something that we then need to try to eliminate or somehow compensate for, modulate in some way. Wow. Could you give us an example? Let's say um, we're, we're talking about diabetes today on this show, if you're just tuning in. Um, but maybe before we get into that, could you give a basic scenario for somebody that would be, you have this toxicity in your life or in your body, and as a result, you have X? Sure. I mean, the th I will give you one of the most common ones I find. The helicobacter pylori, which is a stomach esophageal, even mouth, and, and then the first part of the small intestine called the duodenum. This is an organism. It's a, by definition a bacteria, but it's a spirochete, which means it's a cousin of Lyme's disease. It's shaped like a corkscrew. So being shaped like a corkscrew makes it very difficult for our immune system's white blood cells to wrap around it. Um, and in fact, it can actually, like a corkscrew, burrow down into tissues to escape our immune system or any kind of methodology that we have of killing it. So it's a very tough bug to kill. Now, once that starts to get into the, the first part of that GI, it begins to degrade the tissues. And in the stomach environment, it's literally trying to terraform you. So it's making you produce less hydrochloric acid, making the environment more hospitable for it. So it's, it's literally trying to change you so that it, you're a better host for it. Now, that means you're not going to break down your food very well. That means you're going to have acid reflux or indigestion. That means you're going to have maybe some problems with food allergies because now what does that do? You haven't broken down your foods very well, so therefore you're going to tend to not recognize what those unbroken down foods are, and you're going to start reacting to them. And then there's going to be constipation, and then there's going to be diarrhea, and then there's going to be irritable bowel. It all starts with one bug. 
you know, it, it, it's this chain of event that happens by one simple infection, which happens to be the most common infection in the world. Every mammal can have H. pylori. And just this week, I treated a, a person who had H. pylori pretty bad, got it from her dog. Do wow. not ever let your dog kiss your face. You do not want to be in contact with your dog's saliva because dogs can have it too. And then ironically, I also had somebody send me a, a hair and saliva sample for their dog. Guess what the dog had? She's vomiting up and he's this bug. You know, she's got the dog has the bug, not the owner. So it's this bizarre circumstance of this. I see constantly. So this is the idea of that bug is the toxin. It has thrown off a body system that then when that body system is working, there's a cascade of problems that develop from that. And by the time somebody gets irritable bowel syndrome, they're looking at their colon. They're not looking at their stomach. So this is the challenge is we don't want to go chasing, you know, you know, after some, you know, whack-a-mole of let's get this symptom better and that symptom better and that symptom better and nobody's addressing the core. So from a naturopathic's perspective, we always want to identify what is that core reason why, eliminate it and let the benefit go from there. Wow. And this is kind of a big issue with our culture, wouldn't you say, that we, we see symptoms, obviously they're annoying, they're aggravating, they're life-altering. And it's like a get rid of the symptom because we're kind of reacting to it almost just so that we can feel better. But yet the issue has not been resolved. And like you were saying, you can have constipation and food allergies at the same time and you're looking at them separate, but really it's reaction from the same thing. And that's a lot for people to wrap their head around, which kind of leads me to what we're talking about today, which is diabetes. What? Okay. So I have a couple questions and you can answer them in any order. First of all, what the heck is diabetes? How, how do we get it? And how, how do we know we have it? Let's start there. Well, let, let, let's start with just the, 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 the basic management tools of blood sugar in our body to begin with. How do we deal with blood sugar in a generalized viewpoint? We take food in. That food, whether it's protein, carb, or fat, is going to end up becoming glucose in our bloodstream. Actually, a thing that feeds the cells called pyruvate call it sugar, all right? The idea behind it is as that sugar increases in the bloodstream as a percentage, we're going to end up getting a response from the pancreas that says we're gonna put out insulin. Why? Because embedded in our cell walls are these little vacuum cleaners, I call them. So they're gonna, they're, they're called insulin responsive GLUT4 vesicles. And like little vacuum cleaners, when they're activated by insulin, the whole little chain of event that happens, so insulin will dock with a cell, a chain of events happens, and somebody turns on the vacuum cleaners and they're pulling sugar out of the blood. Now what does that do? That gives our cells fuel to make energy. Now, in a situation where we've got that under control, that's the end of the process. Blood sugar goes up, insulin comes out, our cells pull in enough sugar to bring the levels back down to normal. We have energy production. Everybody's happy. Now, that's a simplified version. Obviously, it gets more complex than that. And what if, if we eat a lot of food at a time, especially if it's carbohydrate-loaded food, that blood sugar level is going to go up, and insulin then is required to stay in the bloodstream a longer time. And insulin can't be expected to stimulate enough of the vacuum cleaner guys to get rid of all the sugar we need to to get the levels back down to normal. So this becomes an emergency. Any blood sugar outside of normal, and, and in the fasting glucose numbers, that's 85 to 100, 
anything that's outside of normal is going to say, wow, we really need to keep pumping out insulin. But in the meantime, this is not being handled very well. So the first to step up to compensate for that is the liver. Liver says, hey, I got some empty storage space down here. We can use the stress hormone cortisol produced by the adrenals to initiate an action to take the sugar out of the bloodstream in the liver, store it as stored sugars called triglycerides in the liver, and then the liver will say, okay, I'll act as that warehouse. Then the sugar comes down wherever, back to normal. Yay. Okay, that's great. But in our society, unfortunately, too many simple carbohydrates means that our blood sugar goes up too fast. All that action I just described starts to happen, but then the sugar burns out so fast that then we reach a low blood sugar state. This is where most people begin, called hypoglycemia. It's not looked at as a very dangerous malady, and they'll just tell you, we'll eat every two hours. But the problem here is low blood sugar is just as much of an emergency as high blood sugar is. So again, now we're each that low blood sugar state, a different hormone produced by the adrenals called norepinephrine is sent to the liver and say, hey liver, remember that stuff you stored in your warehouse? Can you please kick that back out into the system to bring your blood sugar levels back up? So insulin is let's store sugar and remove sugar from the bloodstream. Glucagon is the thing produced by the pancreas that would say, hey liver, let's pull the levels back up. Anytime though we reach a high or a low, in either case, our adrenals have to get involved. Wow. So if we can't manage it high, if we can't manage it low, our adrenals are called into action to manage the emergency. And the liver just, again, it acts like a warehouse. It pulls things in, it puts things out. It's meant to have a continual rotation of that sugar. Is so that's that good for the liver over time though? Liver's I mean, built for it. Liver's built for it, it can do okay. it just fine, so long as you're taking out as much as you're pulling in. And this is where we run into problems because what is the average American's diet like? It's very carbohydrate loaded. So you're putting in a lot, but you're not really pulling much back out. Now, over time, the insulin sensitivity, because you're constantly pumping out a whole bunch of insulin to try to manage the sugar that's too high, you've eaten too many carbohydrates, you're not exercising to burn them off. Can you, can we take a time out? What, can you explain to people what carbs are? Because people have a very <laughs> miscued idea of right. what carbohydrates are and yeah. that there's some good and some bad and how right. they affect blood sugar. Well, and, and you can start getting smaller and smaller definitions, but basically carbohydrates are a sugar molecule that's in virtually all foods, um, but it, it tends to be in fruits, vegetables, grains, but there's going to be some carbohydrate in even things like meat, and even things like you know dairy, you're going to have some natural sugars occurring. The difference is, for most people, um, how fast that carbohydrate turns into that smaller molecule of glucose or fructose in the bloodstream. How quickly does it go from food to sugar in the blood? And do you have control over affecting that? Like, can I as a person help, help get that process going faster or affect You want it to go slower. Okay. You actually want it to go slower. So do, and, I, do I have control over that? Like, I mean, not necessarily in an involuntary way, but do I, can I do different things in my life to change or alter that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. What you want to have is complex carbohydrates versus simple carbohydrates. And, there's, and, the, and here's the difference. Complex carbohydrates are things that pretty much are like they are in nature. You have fiber, and fiber acts like sort of a superstructure of scaffolding, and then the sugar is sort of tucked into the scaffolding and put in there in bits and pieces, you have to break the scaffolding down to get the sugar out. 
And it takes okay. a while to kind of slow release that sugar. The simple sugar is something that you've cooked it, you've ground it, you've broken it up, you've pre move those molecules apart. There's no more superstructure. It's just the sugar is just laying out there ready to be digested. That's going to go into the bloodstream too quickly. Uh, I give an old analogy for this one. It's real simple. I take two pieces of paper, same size. I crumple one up into a ball and I leave one flat and I light them on fire at the same time. Which one is going to burn faster? The crumpled up one. No. Oh, no, the flat one. The flat Not one is going to go right across it. Right, so, so what, is, what is the chemical factor that's the difference there? It's what you're breathing. Oh, oxygen. Right, so there's more surface area exposed to the burning, the air. The oxygen is gonna be more available for more surface area there. So when you're talking about, say, something like you know, grains, you take a whole grain into your body, that's, that's the crumpled up piece of paper. It's very difficult to break down. Your body has to work a long time to chew that up and slow release the sugar. Same with vegetables that are the left in their complex carbohydrate form. But you now take that grain and you grind it up into flour, you've exposed every little part of that to digestive enzymes and the sugar is just gonna go ah. so, you know, Whole grain goodness is a, a load of crap as far as the term goes, because they've taken that whole grain and the, old, the only benefit was when it was a whole grain. You grind that up into flour, it's no good. So it's great marketing science. It was a whole <laughs> grain at one time. It's not a whole grain when you're eating it, though. Right. So in that circumstance now, you, you, so you've got these simple sugars or complex sugars. The faster they come in, the more insulin you have to use to manage it. The more your adrenals have to kick in to manage it. In a slow-release sugar, it doesn't get beyond that point of emergency, and so the, the normal insulin system can take care of that usually. So, our, again, you take a look at our, 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 the typical American diet. There's breads. There's pastas, there's a lot of simple sugars in these beverages that people drink, whether it's, you know, coffee loaded up with stuff or monster drinks or, you know, the, the, the sodas and things like this. It's just too simple sugar. It spikes the blood sugar too high, too quickly. Now your body has to compensate for that emergency. It's a big warning light saying, hey, there's something wrong. And until that system of extreme management comes into play, you don't manage it very well. And so now the system becomes worn out. Can I, can I ask a question? So a lot of my listeners are, are truck drivers, and this is an issue, uh, what you were just describing, you walk into a truck stop, and what are they bombarded with? Yeah. Every, everything sandwiches, is, yeah. candy, donuts, uh, aisles of artificial drinks, and so if they're constantly pumping that into their system over and over and over again, I mean, is it just, how is the body reacting where it's like 8 a.m.? Energy drink and donut, 12 o'clock, processed sandwich and energy drink and orange juice. Oh, I have an orange juice. I'm doing so good. I am so, what's happening? Well, again, it's, it's this, the, the, people ask me about this kind of thing and I go, well, let's just take a hospital as an example. Would you want to run your hospital out of the emergency room only? No. Right. What's going to happen if you only have the emergency room staff managing the entire hospital and every patient who walks in the door? Eventually, you're going to wear out the emergency room staff and things are going to become overloaded and things are going to start to fall through the cracks. That's exactly what's happening when you are constantly using the emergency management system to take care of your blood sugar. Oh, that's a great analogy. That is a great analogy. So, so ultimately, what ends up then happening over time is somebody will develop that hypoglycemia pattern. 
high sugar, low sugar. Over and over and over again, what you're ending up doing is desensitizing the insulin receptor cells to the insulin. Now you need more and more insulin to do the same job. And you're wearing out your adrenal glands. Remember our emergency managers, cortisol to store it in the liver, the norepinephrine to kick it out of the liver? Well, you're wearing out your adrenal glands. So now these people are fatigued and tired and exhausted. Exactly. So Uh now that becomes this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy because the diet doesn't change, does it? So in that circumstance, now that system becomes insulin resistant. So you've gone from hypoglycemic, where it wasn't looked at as serious, and then we get to insulin resistant, and the doctor gives you the warning, well, you better start eating better food, and you better start exercising, which is true, but most people don't know what to eat for one thing, and most people aren't going to exercise like they're supposed to. If that system is then allowed to continue, it's simply crossing the borderline from insulin resistance into flat-out diabetes. It's just a matter of going along a scale of action. Diabetes happens when your insulin just simply cannot bring the blood sugar down, and you don't have enough adrenal capacity to then supply the emergency management. So, so, that, so that's the threshold. That's the threshold of you can no longer manage it. Your, your liver storage can no longer give you what you need. And as a result, it's like whammo. Now right. I have a big problem. Right. So yeah, your insulin doesn't work anymore. Your adrenals are worn out. Your liver is full. So in other words, now you have what's called fatty liver. So that warehouse has a, just oodles and oodles of sugar stored there, but none is coming out. So this then becomes diabetes. But what's interesting when you, when you mentioned, how do you know you've got it? What would, what would you do to test for diabetes? The old-fashioned version was a fasting glucose test. In other words, you, you don't eat from the night before. You go in the morning, you have your sugar taken. And the numbers were basically 85 to 100 was the normal range. Then from 101 to 126 was insulin resistant. 127 and over was diabetes. Anything lower than 85 was the hypoglycemia. Again, they they would more or less just discount the hypoglycemia. Oh, just eat every couple of hours. If you're insulin resistant, they'd say, well, maybe you just diet and exercise. Once you get up over 127, that then is when they start medicating you. Now, the newer version of this is the hemoglobin A1C. Now, this is a different kind of measurement because this is rather than taking a look at, well, here's you today having fasted. It's instead of like usually about the last six months worth of how are you breaking down the oxidized glucose in your bloodstream? This is what's known as advanced glycated end products. Are, pe- are people being tested this way now or is this just yeah, this is the, yeah, this is the new norm as far as they're measuring A1C. So advanced glycated end products, I, I give people the example of creme brulee. You've had creme brulee before, right? Okay. So what you have is that nice creamy egg custard underneath, and then you have the sugar on top that's been, had, been torched. Yep. That's nice and hard and crusty. So think about it in your body the same way. The custard, nice, soft, creamy stuff is your cells. The advanced glycated end products that are being measured with your A1C are the hard, crusty, oxidized sugar on the top. So what they're kind of measuring is how crusty are you when you're talking about getting your A1C <laughs> Sorry, <checked. guys. laughs> So, so what, they're, what, what that basically then demonstrates is here's the long-term residual effect of the oxidation of glucose in your bloodstream, which then is relative in a greater, more long-term view of here's a predictor for diabetes that's better predictor than the blood test, you know, the, the fasting glucose that I discussed before. 
So again, we, we, could, we could react to a fasting glucose. Well, what did you eat yesterday? Where's your adrenals? Did you sleep well? Did you have an allergy reaction? Whatever. It's too variable where the A1C is much more reliable. Okay. So they're, they're typically going to do that as the, the actual diagnoses. Um, they're going to use the A1C. But the fasting glucose takes into account we've been fasting for a while. What is the reaction? What is the capacity? Not only of insulin, but our adrenals. And where's our liver? So when they're testing for, for diabetes, they should also be taking a look at uh, the cortisol levels in the bloodstream. They should be taking a look at the, all the liver enzymes in the GGTP, which they never measure. They should look at things like albumin and globulin, which are mechanisms of how, you know, how your liver is putting things out into the bloodstream. They're not really usually measuring a full spectrum of things that should be done to look at here's the behavior of the participants in your overall you know, management system. So they're kind of ignoring the liver. They're kind of ignoring the adrenals. They're just saying, oh, you produce insulin or not. Okay. And then if indeed you're not producing insulin, then this is when the drugs come into play. Then they'll say, well, your number doesn't look good. Your A1C is high. Your fasting glucose is high. Let's put you on metformin or something like this. Because what that's going to do is it's going to change the receptivity of those insulin receptor cells. Meaning that insulin is going to do a better job but ultimately that does uh, completely ignores the adrenals, it completely ignores the liver. Now at some certain point too, your insulin becomes so low in production from the pancreas because the pancreas is now worn out from hypoglycemia that then you have to not start adding insulin into the system. Now you have to take in this insulin shot or a pump or whatever. Which I know for a lot of you listeners, this is either what you're trying to avoid or maybe you're at this point now. So this is really important information. Right. So, so in that case, what that's doing is it's saying, not only do we, can we resensitize ourselves to something like metformin, which is, again, not such a bad idea, but you're so bad off that you can't even produce enough insulin to manage it with that so we can add more insulin into the mix. And then many people even up and end up on two, three, four, and they're constantly having to do the, you know, the testing and so on. This is the challenge because what is being ignored is your adrenals. Every time you eat, your adrenals kick into play. Now, another thing that contributes to this, which is the unknown look, is are you properly breaking your food down and are you having allergy reactions to your food? Because in either case, if you're not breaking your food down well and there's a reaction to it, or if there's a food that's an allergen to you, Guess who has to react to that? Your adrenals. You're going to further tap your adrenals out, responding to foods that don't belong in our genome. And if they're okay. already burnt out, your body can't react appropriately. Well, now you have all these other issues going on. So wow. it's a, it, the more complex the problem, the harder it is to fix, obviously. Okay. So the idea of breaking your food down fully is making sure you have proper digestive enzymes. Well, how many people who are on diabetes also have stomach problems? Again, they can't break their food down. So they're all popping Tums and Rolaids or taking Prilosec or Nexium and all these things to reduce their stomach acid because they've got reflux. This is the exact opposite way you should go. You, should, you need more hydrochloric acid. It is an impossibility to have reflux with too much stomach acid. If you have, if you have reflux or GERD or whatever you want to call that, it's because the valve that's at the bottom of your stomach, or I'm sorry, bottom of the esophagus, the top of the stomach, is a pH-activated valve. The stronger the stomach acidity, the tighter it shuts. When the stomach is more neutral, that's when it opens and lets things up into the esophagus. So if, you know, all these people taking acid reducers are actually harming themselves in order to not feel their stomach acid. 
but uh, okay, but they're so, so this is important information so what can we do what what could someone like take or or help to help this problem because oh my gosh i can think of more people than i have fingers on my hands that have this issue and also are struggling with diabetes or other issues and it's just like i was just at a funeral yesterday and so I pop and Tums. I mean, a couple people I saw and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I, I don't know what your issues are, but I probably know you're not supposed to be doing that. So. <laughs> right. And especially once you get beyond the age of 40, that's just ridiculous. Okay. Um, so the, what, what could someone do is you do, you should consult a natural healthcare practitioner because some people have this so bad that they have a raw irritated lining to the stomach called gastritis. And if you put additional acid in, you know, in a supplemental format, you could actually do somebody harm. You would actually start digesting their stomach wall. That would be bad that we call it an ulcer, right? So you have to repair the stomach as best you can first. Um, this is usually best done by greens, especially things uh, you know, like spirulina, chlorella, wheatgrass. But then you get into also cabbage. Cabbage is the best fixer of the stomach that there is. Mm. Uh, glutamine. Or, uh, you know, L-glutamine, the amino acid, very good at fixing the stomach. So we need to repair the stomach first, and then we start adding in additional hydrochloric acid. And so this is in the form of a supplement. Usually um, it's just betaine hydrochloride. There's some that include pepsin. There's some that include other enzymes and things like this. There's different varieties, and different people need different types. But generally speaking, somebody could also just test it out and say, what if I were to repair the stomach first and then use apple cider vinegar? Mm. Apple cider vinegar is a weak acid compared to what the stomach needs, but if people feel better on apple cider vinegar, they're going to feel incredibly better by taking the supplemental version of a hydrochloric acid pill. Okay, so I want to take a time out because now we're here talking about stomach acid and talking about you know reflux and GERD, and I find it so interesting because I feel like Americans tend to like to compartmentalize things. So the only way for us to understand right. it is like, put this in this box, put this in this box. And we do that with our health a lot. I have diabetes. Here's the diabetes box. And unless it's in this box, don't talk to me about it because I don't have that problem. I have diabetes. And right. this is the box for the diabetes. So I just want to like open people's ears and eyes to what you're talking about because essentially what from the outside perspective you're talking about something that has nothing to do with diabetes to most people but yet everything to do with why you might have diabetes start at the beginning of the chain of events work with the beginning and the chain of events goes better from there on in and so yeah if you're if you're pre, pre, properly breaking down your food especially your proteins you're less likely to have immune reactions within the gut you're less likely to wear out your adrenals Mm. So then your adrenals get their rest and, and so on. Um, and, you know, hope I know you that you do the whole yoga, meditation, breathing, all that kind of stuff. What could that kind of practice do for somebody on a day to day basis in calming their adrenals down and helping their adrenals to be able to meet the task of blood sugar management? That, oh, that's huge. a big thing, too. Huge. And stress. I mean, for so many people that are out there, drivers, I mean, even just people that have, you know, work in corporate or I don't care if you're a barista, stress plays a huge role in this too. Could you tap on that a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, well, you take any condition and stress will make it worse. Um, but it's, a, it, again, it kind of comes down to our survival mechanisms. What's more important to your body? Survival or fill in the blank. In other words, you, you'll see people with diabetes, especially men, the, their reproductive hormones are all of a sudden also not going to work very well. So men will have a testosterone uh, problem. Well, it isn't a lack of testosterone that's your problem. The problem is that your 
survival is more important than your ability to reproduce. So what your body's gonna do is it's gonna take away the sub-molecules of, of testosterone and convert them over into cortisol that your adrenals can't produce anymore. You will wow. literally move reproductive hormones into the stress process. And then you can say, well, gee, you know, I'm having some erectile problems, I've got a prostate issue, and I'm getting fat, I'm growing boobs, and my guy shouldn't have that. Don't blame the testosterone. And, so, you know, and, and actually taking some exogenous testosterone can actually feed the fire of your stress. Get out of the stress mechanism first. You know, it, it, it's getting rid of our problems from the core is not what we're used to doing. And so for that idea, when it comes to diabetes, take away the precursor factors of that so that when you eat food, it is no longer an emergency. It's not an emergency of blood sugar. It's not an emergency of immune reactivity for allergies. It's not an emergency of not breaking it down. It's not an emergency that you have organisms in your intestines, which is pretty prevalent. I find, I find bacteria and parasites and mold all the time in people that that is an irritant. It's a toxin, as we talked about earlier. Remove the toxin, things settle down. Um, there's an interesting uh, uh, course I took in autoimmunity about a year ago or so, and uh, the the, the uh, presenter was talking about diabetes in a way of it's autoimmune. And the way he presented it is that there is an organism called Streptococcus pyogenes, which is actually then up in the sinuses, and that for many diabetics, type 2 diabetics, that it's actually their diabetes is a sinus infection. Oh, shut the front door. No. Well, in other words, and, and you, yes, you take, you take the people who they have the right diet, they have the right exercise habits, they, they, for everything under the sun, they should not have diabetes in terms of lifestyle habits, and yet their numbers won't come down, clear out their sinuses. Okay. I mean, weirdly enough, that can work. And I've done it a couple of times with people where their numbers have dropped dramatically. I have a guy who's on, he was on a pump. Um, he had extra insulin. He was on three different uh, medications. And we have him down to the pump and it's working minimally. His numbers are, you know, on, on the, he, he, you know, he ranges at about 140. He was in the two, three hundreds routinely, day in, day out, even on all these medications. One of the things we did was nasal rinses with uh, saline that went a long way towards solving his problem. Wow, wow. So, so I got a couple questions for you. So one, because a lot of my listeners are drivers, um, if a truck driver is struggling with diabetes or they're borderline, because um, if you have uncontrolled anything, you can't drive. Um, and if you're on any type of medication in that way, that could be jeopardizing their CDL. So what, what would be one, if, if a driver was like, I know I need to eat healthier, but I'm limited. What would be some ideas for someone to like look for if they're at a truck stop or maybe they're going to think about pre-preparing food for themselves when they're over the road? What would be some things that they could consider adding into their diet and lifestyle? Sure. Well, and, and you mentioned keto earlier that some of the people are trying out protein and fat orientation then by nature of it is going to take away some of the carbohydrates. And certainly that's a good idea. Um, I tend to go more middle of the road rather than going keto. I tend to orient people to paleo. Paleo then that's allows you to have <laughs> So, so I, I'm a big believer in vegetables as far as the microbiome, your immune system, the overall reactivity of the microbiome in your, in your whole body. 
it, it, the new science is saying that that's more important than anything else that we need to consider. So if you want to develop a proper microbiome, you have a large diversity of plant fibers that you take in, which the keto diet tends to not do, especially if it's not done in an educated way. And so keto is kind of a hot fad right now. And I agree with some of its tenets where forcing your body to bypass the insulin system can really help bring blood sugars back into play very so nicely. in an immediate sense, it might be a jump start for someone, but long, long term, maybe not so. Yeah, it, it's a fix it, but it's not a long term strategy for a lot of people. Um, and again, there's people who are doing keto really, really well and intelligently, they could maintain that lifestyle just fine, but it's a lot of work. It's not very easy. And I would, again, uh, even some of those people, as well as they're doing it, they're still not getting the microbiome help that they need from fruits and vegetables. Mm, okay. So again, my, because I'm an autoimmune oriented practitioner, I'm really more about that idea of a proper microbiome because that controls immune responses and reduces the propensity for autoimmunity. So for me, that's more important. I'm not a weight loss practitioner, but I, I do get it that people want to start the process and force their body into a situation where they're not dependent on the carbs. Again, short-term educated, being supported, being monitored by a professional, fine, go ahead. But doing it, like you said, a dirty keto, where you're going to look at some you know, video online and buy somebody's keto products and all this, I don't know that I'd advise that. I'm, so, I'm, I'm curious, what would be, because we've been talking about insulin, we've been talking about sugar, simple and complex. Um, when someone looks at the fruit department, and it's like, okay, I'm just not going to eat a single fruit because I don't want to eat a single sugar. <laughs> what would be some good choices of some fruits to incorporate into their diet if they're concerned about diabetes or their blood sugar levels? The short answer to that is, is berries. Berries. Okay. And, and strawberries don't count. They're not actual berries. Uh, but, you know, blackberries, blueberries, you know, boysenberries, any of these kinds of things, raspberries are good. Um, they have an astringent property to them where they are slow-release sugar. They have a, a, a slower amount of sugar per, um, per ounce. That's good. Avocado, believe it or not, is a fruit. And so avocados are excellent because there's almost no carbs. It's almost all fat. So, you know, but most people don't think of those as a fruit. Most people aren't going to just sit down and, you know, munch into one. But um, that's a very good choice. Now, if you're making a choice otherwise from some of the more common ones, you want to get fruit that is temperate zone. Meaning that, mean? that means that there's the equator and there's the tropical zone and there are fruits that grow in that range. So what's that going to be? Bananas and papayas and mangoes, pineapples, those things that are the warm weather fruits. But then there are those fruits that we could grow, say here, you know, Wisconsin, Minnesota, cherries, apples, pears. Those are the fruits that we could grow here that are temperate zone. They have less sugar simply because they have a shorter growing season and less. It's not as warm a temperature and so on. So those are the ones that if you're going to make a choice from, you know, if, if, if you go into the average, say, gas station, they've got apples and bananas and oranges. Well, probably the apple is the only one that's decent there because that's a temperate zone fruit. Okay. Yeah, I see grapes, sometimes melons, sometimes pineapple or watermelon. Um, you know, it's, it's slow to evolve, but it's happening. But for the truckers, then I, I, I really want to help them because they go in there and they see those things and they've been told so much information where it's like, 
fruit is bad, but this is all that there is. So then instead they choose crap food and it's like, okay, what, what is the line, um, Dr. Essence, what is the line that if like a truck driver goes into a, into a truck stop and he sees grapes and strawberries and pineapple and some apples um, and some bananas and maybe a pre-made sandwich and a bunch of gummy bears. I mean, or, or better yet, like a granola bar, a pre-packaged granola bar, a protein bar, better yet, let's like really yeah. get better because those are a growing issue in the growing aisle at truck stops. Here's a protein bar, here's a, here's a protein shake. What, what could someone choose? I mean, it's overwhelming. You feel like an idiot. Yeah, and, and you know, better make those choices than the pizza and the pop, obviously. Yeah. You know, you're trying to do the best you can in the situation you've got. Uh, I will give the, the listeners maybe someplace that they could go to order for themselves in bulk a really good product. They're called Tonka Bars, T-A-N-K-A. And Tonka Bars are made, basically there's two ingredients. It's dehydrated buffalo meat and cranberries. Awesome. It's the old formula that the Native Americans use. They call pemmican. So this is something that preserves well. It doesn't have a lot of sugar, obviously, because cranberries, even the fruit in there, is a very astringent berry that's not going to cause a blood sugar spike. Tastes fantastic. I use them when I'm biking. Okay. And this is, because it's a protein-oriented meal, it's a slow-release energy into the body, but it's very satisfying. You can eat one Tonka bar, and man, you're full. Okay. And so that, you can order them in cases on, the, on say, like you know Amazon or eBay or whatever, and, and they're not too expensive per... They'd be easy to eat. They're very good tasting. That is the kind of thing that you can give your body that's the long, sustained energy. You don't get an energy spike, but you also don't get the energy downfall after that. Okay. So that would be the thing to look for. Now, there are other sort of jerky kind of things, but most of the jerkies that you're going to find at a gas station are so loaded with all kinds of nasty food colorings and tastes and all this stuff that they're really not good for you. Now, again, making that choice versus the pizza, eh, you know, flip a coin. It's you know, you <laughs> like a trail mix, like that has like a yeah. lot of nuts in it. And now I know they're probably not sprouted and they're probably not soaked and all of that. But but I oh, guess what, cool. for for listeners right now, where could they start? Where it's kind of like a it's better than right. Like, that's probably where a lot of that a lot of listeners are right now. Sure, you can get these sleeves of say smoked almonds and things like this. Um, that's a better choice than obviously candy or gummy bears. Um, you know, things like that. And even though I'm not a big dairy fan, there are cheese sticks, or you can get like, here's a jerky meat stick, and here's a cheese stick combined together. Um, there's hard-boiled eggs. I, I usually find yeah. that hard-boiled eggs are there. Not egg salad sandwich, but hard-boiled eggs. Um, you know, those are choices that you can go with. If you're going to go with any of the, the pre-packaged, pre-wrapped uh, protein bars, try to stay away from soy. Um, soy is really not a very good food for us, and there's all kinds of reasons why not to eat it. So the hard part about that is the vast majority of, of those bars are made from soy protein. Now, there are some that aren't, and I know like the, there's a, a couple of brand names that have no grain. If you can possibly find something that is a paleo-compliant bar, you look for the on their paleo or look for no grain. You're trying to get away from the grains, trying to go towards those things that are more nuts and seeds. Things like dates are really good for you. Um, you know, and again, a date has sugar, but it's a slow release sugar and there's so many benefits. It's worth having that. Um, so would that be a good choice for a snack is like something with dates in it, like a date mix or yeah. like chopped up dates. Yeah. Along those lines? Sort of, 
you know, trail mixy kind of idea that you can have some dehydrated fruits in there so long as the right kind of fruits, dates, cranberries, um, you know, raisins, not so bad. Um, you know, but try to get, not get the ones that are like the sugar coated pineapple in them. You know, that, that's not going to be a good one. Um, as far as the nuts go, you want to try to get away from things like peanuts, go more towards almonds, walnuts, pecans, um, you know, maybe macadamia nuts, that kind of, of protein or in fat mixes a lot better than the, than the peanuts. And peanuts tend to, to have a lot of bad you know, fungus and things like that on them. What, what is your take on, and, and I'm just thinking about all the different things that my drivers are seeing when they go into a truck stop. Um, when they're looking at the prepackaged uh, juices, like the naked juices, or they, you know, I see people go up to the, the um, checkout, and I'm not just talking about truckers, it's like when I'm at my local quick trip, and I see people go up there, they got an energy drink, they got an orange juice, they got a chocolate milk, and then they got like a banana. And it's like, what part of that are they trying to justify that they're making a healthy choice? Right. And, and you mentioned naked juice, there's also bolt house juices. Okay. Well, those aren't bad choices. And, and given where you are, that's it's probably a better choice. choice. Yeah. And um, I think every single truck stop carries those. So for those of you that are listening, you know, if it's like a if or this or that, choose, choose, choose the naked juices. They got amazing flavors. Choose the, the flavored water. I mean, I, again, we could be so nitpicky that we're like, <laughs> now, yeah. you know what that does for you? Look at the back. I mean, if at least doesn't have you know, a list of junk a mile along as the label. I mean, we have to start somewhere. And I think that's, that's really what you're doing for them, Jeff, is, you know, the idea of making your own trail mix or, or go down the aisle, dust off the bags that have the trail mixes because clearly they're not as popular, but look at what's in there. It's a better option than what you're currently buying. We have to start somewhere. Right, right. And, and you know, ultimately, if you're playing the game of choices, if, if you can default to more fat, more protein, less carb. Okay. Um, if that's the simplest rule of thumb that you can go with, that's better. Staying away from grains. So, uh, grains are the worst offender where it comes to diabetes. The, the archaeological studies that have taken a look at when they, they look at the bones of people and they can see here's the hunter-gatherer people who are basically eating what they hunted and gathered. And this is you know, the meat, the vegetables, the fruit that happened to be in season as they're walking along. As soon as people set foot on a piece of ground, started raising grains and used grains as the primary basis of the diet, within two generations, you have skull malformation, bad teeth, and that's when diabetes started. Wow. Grains are the worst possible offender for you if you have diabetes because they are not only a food that we don't have an enzyme to break down, they have very simple sugars, but they are a major immune stimulant to your own body is being now attacked by your food. Which goes back to the other issues with the stomach and, and all the right. food allergies. It was kind of just like all happening at the same time, almost in a sense. Right. And you know, you look at like the American Diabetes Association, they're saying, we'll eat whole grains instead of white bread. It doesn't matter because they're all an allergy causing thing. There's not a single human who doesn't produce antibodies when you consume what's called gluten which is actually gliadin, wheat, barley, and rye products are 100% toxic to all human beings. It doesn't matter whether you're sensitive or not. You, you don't have the enzymes to break it down. You can't manage it. You will have an immune response. And another version of diabetes that's out there, again, for those people, their lifestyle in terms of diet, exercise, 
all the numbers are where they're supposed to, you know, all the lifestyle choices are there, but their numbers are still bad. There's a thing called the glutamic acid decarboxylase enzyme 65, shortened GAD 65, that this can be being attacked by your own immune system. And this is not the type 1 diabetes where the actual pancreatic tissue is being attacked. This is a type 1.5 diabetes. What does that mean? That means that it isn't a, the problem of too much sugar coming in. It isn't the problem of, of necessarily of that you're not exercising. It's that your own immune system is attacking an enzyme that lives in your pancreas whose job it is is to manufacture your insulin. Wow. In other words, you have a, you have a warehouse, or I'm sorry, you have a manufacturing plant that makes insulin. The plant is doing just fine, but the workers are being killed. <laughs> okay? That's a great analogy. Right. Now, and, and so this is principally responsible from toxins like metals and chemicals, but also gluten. Gluten will do that to you. So there are people who are diabetic for no good reason, it seems like, and it doesn't seem like it's going to be managed very well, no matter what they do for diet and exercise. You go after the sinus infection, and then you take a look at what are the offending foods that could be attacking the pancreatic enzymes. That begins your, your journey down the here's the hard one to fix solution. And this goes back to the whole like compartmentalized syndrome that so many of us Americans suffer from. If it doesn't fit into the box that we're used to seeing this dis-ease in, then it's like, well, that's not the cause. That's not the problem. That's not the reason why. It's like we can't, it's hard to see the bigger picture because we're so used to that. And, and, and this is not quite a question that goes with that, but I'm just curious, and maybe this is the reason to have you on the show again. Um, you, you touched on the standard American diet, and, I, and the food pyramid comes to mind. My son just came home from school, and he, they were talking about the food pyramid, and he had said in class, my mom says that grains aren't all that great and that we should not have 12 a day. That'll kill us. And his teacher didn't like that. I mean, I didn't say kill it, but he, you know, you know what I mean? It's really bad for you. And he's like, my teacher told me that that's not right and blah, blah, blah. And so what in your idea, and, and, and please know, you know, his teacher is wonderful and you only know what you know until you know more. That's my mentality. What, what would, when you look at that triangle, what would be your idea of a new version to spark some thoughts for people as, as we kind of wrap this up? Sure. I mean, from the bottom of the triangle, just take sure, the entire, you want to look at it. Yeah, just, just no, no grains or no grains in there whatsoever. Okay. That, that would take the entire bottom off of their pyramid. But then you're going to take all this funding that goes to other things that, you know, right. marketing, know. marketing, it's, 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 it's cheap and easy food. I get that. It's, it's, it stores well. You can make it into a lot of things. I understand the convenience of it, but your truckers are used to this. So let's just say you want to buy a nine volt battery. Are you going to get a better deal going to Target or going to your gas station? But why does the gas station charge more? Because it's convenient. You're already there, but you're going to pay a bigger price. So if you're going to eat convenient foods, you're going to pay the price otherwise with your health. So wow. yes, grains are convenient, no doubt about it. It's, it's, we've based our entire food system on them, but we're paying the price with our health. So in that circumstance, I would replace the grains with lots of vegetables, celery sticks, carrot sticks, eat asparagus, just you know, raw. Um, you, know, you can eat broccoli, cauliflower, rutabaga. You know, nobody ever eats rutabaga. You know, oh, I love it, I yeah. love it. 
Roasted, oh, so good. And the more different kinds of vegetables that you eat, the better your health will be. So fill up your bulk with vegetables. Now you're gonna also want some good quality meat proteins, meaning good quality, not good quantity. You, you don't need a lot of protein, but you should have some meat proteins that are organic, free range, wild caught, pasture raised. Somebody goes out and sings them a song every night. I don't care, you know, whatever terminology would imply that this is a better quality meat, right? Yes. So that's a good part of it. And I do include eggs as meat. Okay. They, the eggs are not dairy as is implied by that stupid food pyramid. Which makes no sense. They don't come from a cow. You, know what, you want to know the reason why? Yes. Because the, pro, the, the, the proteins that are in dairy and eggs, they share a protein called casein. It was recognized a long time ago when that food pair was being put together is that casein is oftentimes a very hard thing for people to break down. And it's a, it's a, it's a persistent initiator of, food, of digestive problems. Ah. So we're going to put eggs with dairy because if you're dairy sensitive, then just don't eat eggs. And if your eggs, you know, if you have problems with eggs, that may also be a problem with dairy. So they're going to put them in together. But no, eggs are meat. Okay. Just simple as that. Okay. Um, and, and dairy, I tend to say, well, you know what, you know, I, I was raised on dairy. I, I, I'm a, I just, you know, I was a prodigious dairy consumer for most of my life. I will now still eat dairy, but it has to be pre-digested for me. What does wow. that mean? That means it has to be cultured. That means a culture is put into it as a cheese, as a kefir, as a yogurt, as something that with those organisms are going to break down the molecules of that dairy to the point where then I can break, you know, eat it without any kind of serious response. But just to sit there and think of just drinking a glass of milk is repulsive to me because I know what's in that milk. Um, and so it, it is that kind of idea where dairy is an add-on. It's a flavor additive. It's a texture additive. It's a topping. But it's, it's not seasoning. A it's, a, it's a little like, oof, and that makes the, the, the dish come to life. Right. So, but yeah, it's, it's not any kind of principle. I'm going to sit here and eat a chunk of cheese. No. Um, so, so dairy has a place, um, again, some of the kefirs and yogurts have the good culture in them. If you get the genuine version of that, that can be good for you. So, and, and the, the thing that you want to do is get away from cow dairy. Okay. Um, there was a study done that took every mammalian milk and they compared it to different blood types and different versions of human blood as an allergy test. And they said, which milk is closest chemically to human milk? which milk is the one that has the least amount of allergy response, and then they did it on a scale all the way to the worst one. So what's the worst one, do you think? Cow. Cow. So as human beings, of course, we choose the worst possible animal to provide us with our milk. Guess what the best one is? Goat. No, and, and the, is, goat milk is better, but it's still not the best. Um, animal you probably would never guess. Well, <laughs> well, I know from Meet the Fockers, you can't milk a cat. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Happens to be the camel. Really? Yes. Camel's milk is as close as you can get to human milk. It is the least antigenic milk, but good luck finding it. <laughs> so, but you, there, I mean, you actually can get camel's milk, but it's not going to be a normal you know, walk in a grocery store thing. Uh, but again, when you talk about cow's milk, it's just really a big antigen pusher. It creates a huge mucus response. And then if you're buying just your plain old commercial dairy, there are up to 84 chemicals that aren't milk in milk in that container. 
So you're eating a very chemically loaded, I don't know what this is, too large a molecule, poisonous, antigenic responsive food when you're drinking a glass of milk. And so I just, when it comes to the, you mentioned the, the you know, the, the teachers and the food and the, you know, the, the, those, the, the schools that push milk, it's really a bygone thing. I mean, we, we need it's to get rid of it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like so many people are miseducated. It's a money thing. Um, I've heard Karen Urbanic talk on this a little bit that like when the whole got milk campaign came out, there was also like this federal funding thing that was happening simultaneously. And that's when this whole thing came to life. Cause yeah, that goes back to the depression. Actually um, the milk farmers during the depression were literally losing money by raising, by you know, producing milk. So they would bring huge wagons of these old-fashioned milk cartons, you know, milk canisters, and they would dump them down the drain in protest right in front of, the, of Congress. And wow. they, so Congress said, well, what can we do for you? And, you know, this was still during the Depression. They didn't have a lot of money. So what they did is they said, well, we, the government, will guarantee you an amount of gallons per milk sold per individual in the United States if you can limit your price structure to only make so much per gallon. This was an agreement between the American Dairy Association, newly formed at that time, and the government, and this contract still exists. So now, here in the 1980s, here comes this low-fat phase that we have. And fat-free. So now all of a sudden, everybody, everybody stops eating milk because it's high fat, right? So what did they do? They come up with a government cheese program. We have extra milk that we have to guarantee the farmers to buy, so let's turn this milk into cheese and give it to poor people that's again, that's still kind of what's happening. The schools are this institution that pumps a lot of milk out oh, yeah. per person to make up for the deficit of the American public waking up to a dairy is really not that good for you. And eventually that agreement's going to have to be amended or taken care of some way because honestly, you know, th there's very little need for dairy farmers. And I know you're from Wisconsin. That's probably not the <laughs> most welcome news. It's a reality, unfortunately. Though. Can start raising camels and, and doing that. There you go. <laughs> There, you know, there are camels that can live in cold weather. So the, the uh, Bactrian, yeah. Yeah. No. So okay. So so food pyramids. So veggies on the bottom, meat and eggs. Uh, more of like the sparing sparing dairy, and then where? How much fruits? Where do fruits fit yeah. in? Who would be what that very top? Berries yeah. as a separate category. Well, let's just put them all together, though. Fruits can be that thing that's at the top of the pyramid, where it's a small amount. Again, what we're looking there for is their antioxidant potential. We can't ignore fruits because they give us a lot of things that help us to be immune competent, uh, meaning that if something comes our way, we have the ability to respond with an effective immune activity. So, and again, accuracy is also improved there. Um, you know, we all know that we have white blood cells that attack and kill things like bacteria, but we have to have an antibody on that bacteria in order to attract that white blood cell. The activity of producing antibodies is enhanced when you have lots of antioxidants in your body. So the red, orange, yellow, purple, and blue fruits do a fantastic Ooh. job of that. So we, 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 could, we could say that, you know, you know, these keto people saying, we'll never eat fruit. Well, are you sacrificing your immune system for the lack of sugar? Ah. You know, it's, again, that's a bit of a judgment call on person, you know, per person basis. But honestly, I don't want to do without fruit for that reason. So in my you know, protein shake every day, I've got a fruit dehydrated red fruit blend that I put in there just to keep my antioxidants kind of on the high side. 
And that, and you're touching on this, which is fantastic because again, a lot of my listeners are truckers and they're going to say, well, I don't have a blender. So what you're suggesting, I've heard you say this twice now, is you have a powder form of greens and a powder form of reds, essentially, that you're putting in. Is this something that my truckers could shake in a shaker and drink with water? I, I mean, so again, we're thinking, how can they eat on convenience that health doesn't have to be a this or that? Is that something that would be a good step for diabetes in the right direction? Right. And, and for, for some people who've had diabetes, I, I do the Italian flag program um, where, you know, it's oh. red, red, green, and white. Okay. Your white is your protein powder. And, and I like peas. It tends to be my favorite one. There's some rice ones that are okay. Um, but I think pea protein tends to be the one that does best for most people. Okay. Um, for somebody with a lot of allergy problems, they are now making though, uh, there's a company that's making a, and this sounds really bad, but it's an artificially produced lab version of amino acids, meaning that they derive them from a synthetic source, which ends up being no allergy response whatsoever. Okay. For the average person who doesn't have a lot of allergy issues, a pea protein as your white, then you're going to have a green dehydrated vegetable blend. That's mm. green, part of your flag. And then the reds are these dehydrated reds. And so you can just basically take a scoop of each, throw it in a shaker bottle, now, I, I tend to do almond milk or, or uh, coconut milk. That's Which fine. Which is something that they could get at the gas station. Again, right. if that's what you have, you know they have several brands now even. Right. Pick one of those up. It'll be milkier. It'll be thicker. You right. know, or just plain water works great too. Yeah. I mean, cool. use the ice dispenser. A lot of you, you know, you go in there in the morning, you get your breakfast anyways. I love this. I'm, I am going to have to use this. I love the Italian flag program idea, but this is one of the things that for a lot of my drivers, they're struggling with diabetes. They don't know what to do, or they're not sure if they have it. They think that they do. And it's, they're, they're so confused because there's so much information out there. And this is one of the things I appreciate about, appreciate about you, Dr. Essence, is that you explain why. It's not just a, you know, I went to this one day thing and they told me about this amazing diet and now I'm going to tell you to do it because everybody should do it. Your quest is to really dig down into the root of the issue and the problem, be it the individual, but also just how did this happen to begin with? And education is key. If you want to change anything, you got to educate yourself and you have to want to educate yourself. And this is the wave. We're in the era of, of really wanting to do that. And you are such a pioneer in that. And so I would like you to let people know because they're going to listen to this and go, oh my gosh, I have all these other questions. How can people work with you? Sure. Um, you know, the, my website is wholelifeclinic.com. And I'll, I'll pop that up on the bottom sure. here so they can see um, And, you know, we work with people from a number of different angles. Obviously, somebody sitting across the desk from me is going to probably get the, the best version of things, but we realize that not everybody can do that. So we have the ability. Oh, I should tell people, where are you located? I'm in Rosemount, Minnesota. Okay. So my truckers, you're going up that way. I know many of you take through Wisconsin, the corridor up to up to Minnesota. This could be one of your 32s or 34s that you have off. <laughs> I don't know those terms, but okay. Well, they're required to take a, a longer break by law. And so this would be a great opportunity for them. Sure. So, you know, in that circumstance, what I do with people who are distance, you know, people, um, there's a, a, a machine that I use called electrodermal screening. And I am capable of having somebody mail in a, a hair and saliva sample. So enough hair to sparsely cover your palm in a Ziploc bag. And then a Q-tip with saliva soaked on both ends and another in another Ziploc bag. 
then a piece of paper that has all the contact info, especially email, and then just a brief description of here's my problems. You know, I have diabetes, I have GERD, I have kidney problems or whatever. So with that brief list, I can then take that sample, put it on my machine, and then use my own hand for testing rather than testing the person who's sitting across the desk for me. And I come up with really good answers. So then I email the result PDFs to the person, and then we find a time to get together on the phone. They're looking at their forms. I'm looking at their forms on my computer, and I just go over item by item. Here's why, here's what, here's, here's how I found it all. And I bio-individualize everybody's program. It isn't just a pat out here, do this, because everybody says it's good. It's going to be specific to that person's circumstances that I then develop a program of nutrients and diet and exercise, and here's what you should do, so that they then have a, a you know, here's what I'm going to follow for, say, three months. Then we do maybe let's go to either go to your own physician and get a blood test, or I can recommend, you know, I can get you a blood test, and we can take a look at the difference in numbers. Where did that program get us as far as fasting glucose and A1C and things like the liver enzymes, things like the, the albumin and globulin? Where are we with all that in our system? If we can take a look at those numbers getting better, then we understand that the program was addressing the core problem. If numbers aren't getting better, we miss something. And then we try to find and dig into that. Wow, this is fantastic. This is absolutely fantastic. For those of you who are listening today, um, please let us know if this information was valuable. Make sure you always share out our show, Daily Dose of Hope from Coleman Steel Radio, because I know many truck drivers, and not just truck drivers, are dealing and struggling with diabetes, and there's a lot of confusion out there as to how to respond to these issues, and you really got literally to the root of the issue.